welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Robert Fort, and we're talking about behavioral finance, tips for overcoming irrational financial decisions. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today, Jeff Bernier, President and Chief Financial Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, Andy Avra, Avra Wealth Advisors, and Taylor Stanfill at Verisale Partners. Let me ask each of you first to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and perhaps some of your uh, certifications and qualifications. Jeff, let's start with you first. Uh, yeah. Again, my name is Jeff Bernier. I'm the president and uh, chief investment officer of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors. We're an Atlanta-based fee-only wealth management company. We're uh, focused on helping our clients create clarity and confidence to live a great life as, as they define it. Um, I started uh, in this industry on April Fool's Day, 1986. And so for 34 years, I've been helping people try to get their actions and resources in alignment with their goals and, and what matters most. Um, I hold the certified financial, I'm a certified financial planner, professional, charter financial consultant, have a master's degree in financial planning, and um, I'm a proud graduate of the University of Georgia. Andy, how about yourself? My name is Andy Aver. I started, I started Aver Wealth Advisors two and a half years ago. Um, I'm a CFP, have a CFP designation, and a CTFA, a Chartered Trust and Financial Advisor designation. Um, advisors focus on what's really most important to them. And so we provide life-centered financial planning uh, for individuals. Uh, I have about 20 years of experience doing financial planning. I have a master's degree in financial planning from Georgia State, undergrad at, at Georgia Tech, um, and I have a wife and two young boys. Right. And uh, Taylor, tell us about yourself. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Taylor Stanfield, I'm a partner at Vericell Partners. I've uh, been doing this about 10 years, although I don't look like it. Um, and just love coming alongside families, individuals, business owners, and helping them figure out what's important to them, how to be intentional, not only in their family, uh, in their family life, financial life, and just life in general. So um, kind of focus and specialize a little bit in retirement planning, uh, and then on this topic as well, just have had a lot of folks give me feedback about behavioral finance and how that plays into things and to love talking about it. And I have two business partners and um, we're big runners. So we run together a lot and get outside and uh, kind of have that in common. So we have a good time while we also are very strategic. Very good. So our, our topic today is behavioral finance tips for overcoming irrational financial decisions. And both all three of you have talked about how you approach uh, your your investment advisory in a holistic way. Let, let's talk a little bit about exactly how each of you define behavioral finance, because there's, my sense is there's no particular definition, but it, it encompasses a broad scope of ideas. So uh, Taylor, let's start with you. Sure. You know, when I think about it, I think our behavior and our decisions are driven by our beliefs. And so, so many times with clients, the first thing we do is, I, in, whether it's directly or indirectly, it's uncovering those underlying beliefs that are driving behavior. And whether those beliefs lead to good decisions, wise decisions, objective decisions, or lead to the opposite, 
you know, non-objective, unwise decisions. Um, so it's all those things that create or define behavioral finance for individuals, families, business owners. And Andy, how about how about you? How do you either define behavioral finance or, or actually think about it in terms of your practice area? I, I think for for us, it's just understanding what people's tendencies are and, and their underlying biases are. Uh, because I think everyone comes at it from a different approach. And, and there are some, whether it's emotional bias or cognitive bias, I mean, people make decisions based on certain factors. And it's really understanding what those factors are to help our clients live their best life and to make good decisions. And so every client is different. Every client has different past experiences. And so it's really undercovering what that is to help them avoid what we're going to talk about today is avoid those irrational decisions and try to make them as rational as possible, given the fact that we are irrational people. Jeff? Yeah, I, I think what I would say is, you know, as, as uh, behavioral finance has become such a popular area of study in the last 50 years, there's a lot of uh, detailed academic research on the different definitions of behavioral investing and behavioral finance. And I'm a lot less interested in all the fine uh, points of the different definitions. What I'm really most interested in, how it impacts real people in their real lives, because at the end of the day, the way I view financial planning is just helping people get their actions and resources in alignment with what matters. And uh, over a lifetime of investing, and investing is only one subset of that, um, I believe the investor behavior has more influence in the long-term success or failure of an investment strategy uh, than the investments themselves. So I, I think investor behavior can have a huge impact if we can just keep from making the big mistakes. And at the same time, it's really, in my view, about return on life, not just about return on investment. So how can we create uh, a joyful experience, not just an academically sound experience, but one where you can enjoy your life and not worry about the day-to-day -day things that you have no control over. I, I've noticed in each of your answers that you've talked about looking at what motivates people. I, I, think, I think, Jeff, you referred to it as biases. I'm sorry, Andy, as biases. And Taylor, you said as looking for someone's beliefs. Uh, maybe it's I've been married too long, but I often find it hard to understand what my own biases are or what's motivating me, that I, I, I am sometimes oblivious to that. So as a financial planner, how do you help your clients identify what their bias may be or what their beliefs may be? Because it's, it's, it's kind of like saying, you know, I like this piece of art, but why? So how do you, Taylor, how do, how do you find help your client identify that so you can get to understand your client? Yeah, that's a great question. That is sometimes the hardest thing to do. Um, you know, I mean, it starts with asking great questions and a lot of questions, um, you know, and just one, you know, just continue to dig deeper and deeper because the best thing you can do is help them identify their beliefs. And it's a lot of times if you dig deep enough, if you ask enough questions, they start to have that aha moment of, oh, I get it. I feel, you know, entitled. I feel like I, you know, I'm, uh, I've lived this whole way my whole life or whatever it might be, um, you know, they, they start to uncover these things and it becomes it becomes a, um, a lighthearted discussion versus me telling them or saying anything. And so they they're able to identify themselves as they begin to talk. And it's really you know, if they're if they're married, it's great to have both of them together because usually there's two different perspectives. And so, you know, they know each other very well 
And again, as you're asking questions to one spouse or the other, they start feeding off each other and really bouncing off and saying, oh, yeah, I've seen that in you. And on the back end of that, on the other side of that, there has to be humility to embrace that. You know, they can identify it and see it. But the next step is embracing it um, with and that takes some humility to identify some of those beliefs, whether they're good or bad or false beliefs, um, takes humility to embrace those. Okay, Jeff, I'm going to put you on the spot. So you're the most experienced. That doesn't, you know, just a different person. It's not, it's not an age thing. I'm probably older. But what's the first question you're going to ask a new client to try to figure out from the, the place from where they're coming? Well, I, let me start, first of all, by congratulating you, Craig, on being human. You, you know, you said that you had these biases and you had a hard time uncovering these biases. I think the first thing I would say before I answer your question is that we all have those biases. So your wealth manager is not immune to these same challenges that you face. So this is part of the human condition. But back to your particular question, I, I think the first question I typically ask is, you know, why are you here? I mean, what what are you hoping to find out or what are the things that are keeping you up at night that you need to address? And so why, why are you here? But there are, you know, at the end of the day, it's really about giving people a safe platform where they can be vulnerable. And the way to do that, I believe, is for us to be humble and vulnerable as well. And so you ask just open-ended questions about, you know, if, if, if um, you know, what keeps you up at night? What are the things that, uh, that you're most excited about? If life turned out really great for you, what would that look like? Um, and at the end of the day, just asking some really good open-ended questions and giving people permission to, to be themselves and not feel like they've got to put on their armor because we have armor. No, no one wants to admit that we have these biases. No one wants to admit that we, you know, that we don't know things. I mean, that's part of the challenge as being um, uh, behavioral investors as opposed to emotional investors is that, you know, we have to come to grips that there's just a lot we can't know, but what we can be experts on is how we feel. So I know this sounds a little soft for uh, an academic environment and the things that we do professionally, but it's really just letting people have a safe platform to talk about their fears, the things they look forward to, the things that get them excited every day. And at the end of the discussion, you know, these things will rise up is my experience. So uh, Jeff, you were just talking about biases and my, my reading in this area suggests to me that, that, and this was a revelation to me, although when you hear it, it's entirely obvious that a lot of what we're dealing with are things, frankly, dealing with our evolution over millions of years, the fight or flight uh, um, experience, the fear of loss and things like that. So, so Andy, why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about sort of our natural biases, particularly with respect to uh, you know, financial decisions and how you and your practice go about uh, dealing with that. Yeah, I, I think, uh, um, you know, I'm enjoying hearing what everybody else is saying as well. Um, you know, for us, you know, from the emotional side, like it really does come down to fear and greed as, as people make investment decisions. And, you know, we tend to use software to, to uncover uh, what people's, what people's tendencies are. And, um, you know, and, and so it's really just having those conversations with people to, uh, to, to understand, 
you know, where they're coming from. All right, well, let's, let's talk about, again, you know, I, I've gone through this and there, there are lots of different categories. Um, and a lot of these things run together, but, but I've, I've tried to identify for purposes of our discussion various um, focuses of and, and things that the psychologists have pulled out. So let's, let's talk about one in, in particular um, uh, that, that has interested me, and, and that is the, the overconfidence we all have. And, and this dawned on me when I read about a study where they, they took a survey of drivers and like 90% of drivers think they're over, you know, they're better than average. And, and from what little I remember about college statistics, that can't possibly be. But that bleeds over into lots of things we do in life, including investing. You know, lots of people think, oh, I know better. I know what's going to go up. I know what's going to go down. I know what the economy holds, this, that, and the other thing. So, Taylor, talk a little bit about how you deal with, with the overconfidence bias. Not something I suffer from in a financial view. I, I suffer from underconfidence, but but I still want to hear. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the good news is that most, a lot of people who are coming to us that are seeking financial help, they have had an experience where overconfidence has not helped them or it has hurt them, or they've been managing it themselves, or they, you know, they quote unquote knew what the market was going to do, or they knew that it was going to continue going up or whatever, you know, they knew it was going to go down. So they've had an experience based on overconfidence that has led them to our office. And honestly, that is a great place for folks to be because they're seeking help. They're seeking counsel. Um, and so a lot of times it's, we're, we're looking to serve folks that have had experience or on the other side of an overconfidence bias um, you know, because when they're, when they are over, when we are overconfident, it can be hard to take, take sound advice, hard to receive advice, um, and then actually adapt change and incorporate that into our reality. Um, so a little bit different, a different take on your question, but that's kind of what we see a lot. One of the things that I see with overconfidence is not in the overconfidence in investing itself, but with a lot of people who have been successful in business or successful in a certain aspect of life, they have an overconfidence of what they know that seems to me to bleed into uh, how you're going to invest. I, uh, how does that play out, that, that type of confidence? Yeah, I, I would love to jump in here because that triggers a, a memory of mine. I, some of the most challenging client relationships are those uh, clients that are in industries where they have to forecast, right? So I've got a CFO for a company, He's got to forecast earnings. He's got to forecast hiring and decision-making and borrowing. So he spends a lot of time studying economics and trying to make a forecast for his business, which is totally rational for his business to make a forecast for the short to intermediate term. But that leads to him having more confidence in his ability to forecast the market or the economic environment as it, as it moves forward. And so you're, you're, I think you're absolutely cor correct. Uh, confidence in one world can bleed in to a world where things are unknowable and unpredictable. But we think since we have an area of expertise or control in one area, it, it can create, it creates some overconfidence. Same thing happens all the time with company, with employees who own too much of their company stock. Well, I know the management, I know our products, I know our services. Therefore, I know that this is a good stock. 
Well, academic research shows that all that stuff is just noisy and random, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you've got a good stock. You know, a great business does not necessarily mean a good stock. Um, so, you know, I think it bleeds into a lot of different different areas, but I think your point's well taken about expertise in one area can bleed over to overconfidence in trying to understand and predict capital markets. I'm not sure if this is part of the overconfidence bias, but but one of the things I have picked up is that we as humans often need to come up with a rational story for events. So we often try and, and make sense of random events and, and try and explain them. Or, or we come up with cause and effect where none, none actually exists. And again, I think, I think a sensitivity to, to that, those biases um, is, is frankly probably helpful living your life. We're, we're dealing with some very uh, crazy events at, at the time we're, we're, we're doing this show. Um, and, and there may not be an explanation, but, um, you know, other than stuff happens, as the bumper sticker says. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts today, Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasowitz Frankel. And we're talking about behavioral finance with Jeff Benier, Andy Avera, and Taylor Stanfield. Let's, let's talk about uh, another um, topic here that, that I find fascinating. But again, it's one of those things, once you read about it, it's sort of like an aha moment. And, and it's things that, uh, something called loss aversion. And, and the studies uh, that I've seen have suggested that given our fear of loss, uh, the loss of a dollar uh, is, is perhaps twice as, as visceral to someone as the gain of a dollar, even, even though the financial consequences, you know, one up, one down, but, uh, you know, the loss uh, aversion or risk of loss and, and how that motivates decision-making. Andy, do you, want, do you want to deal with that again in, in the context of, of financial decisions? And I think that's a particularly appropriate now as we are in a very volatile market, the market's up and down one, two, sometimes 3% a day or a week, and, and uh, the fear and, and concern generated by that. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no, no question that the loss aversion is real. And, you know, for, for clients, you know, first, when we build investment portfolios for them, we try to build a solid foundation for them to prepare them for the ups and downs of the market. But, but I think for, for most individuals, you know, when they see something go down, it, it's painful, right? I mean, the thought of losing money is painful and it paralyzes people. And so, you know, you really want to have conversations with clients so they understand things go up and things go down, but you can't let the losses drive your decisions and let the emotions take over because what will happen is it will make it will force you into a position where you do make irrational decisions. Um, and, you know, we try to have conversations with clients so they understand what the feeling is like when you start to lose money, because the markets do go up and down. And so we try to prepare them for both sides. Now, I've, I've heard uh, in, in your field, there's there's this concept called rules based investing. Mm -hmm. uh, which which you want to tackle that because I think that's a segue from what what Andy just said. Well, I do. I, I'll keep going. I I do think you know 
when we talk with clients about their investments, you know, we want to have a plan out in the future that is not emotional um, because it's, it's easy for us to say, oh, we'll wait to that stock goes up 10% and then we'll sell it. Or if it goes down 5%, we'll sell it. Um, but when you get in the moment, you're going to make different decisions. And so if we know six months from now, we've made a decision that we're going to invest over a monthly period, or we're going to do X, Y, or Z that's rules based. Um, it's easier in the moment to ignore the emotional side and try to make more rational decisions. Okay. So how do you do that in today's environment where I assume, uh, your phone is lighting up every time the market drops, I'm still trying to explain to myself what a negative oil price is. Um, I thought I'd go out and buy some oil and get paid for it. But how do you, when your clients really are understandably upset by the, the fear of loss, what do you do to, to bring them off the ledge? So we, we bring them back to their goals. So everything we do is goals and values based. And so we talk about your portfolio is down 10%. Has anything changed with your goals and what you're trying to accomplish? And if the answer is no, you know, we focus on the portfolio and we talk big buckets about bonds and stocks. And so the bonds have actually done well, reasonably well during this period. And so we talk about the war chest that we built within their portfolio to say you have 10, 20, 30 years worth of expenses already built in your portfolio. The stock piece is the growth part it's going to come back. And I don't like to throw a lot of data at my clients, but we do use past performance to show them what the markets have done historically, to show what happened for those who got out of the market in 2008, what happened to their portfolios. Um, but we try to bring it all back to their goals and focus on them because investments at the end of the day is just a tool to accomplish your goals. Yeah, I, I would love to jump in here if, if that would be okay. I. You know, I, I think what uh, Robert was asking earlier about uh, evolution, right? So as a species, we have survived because we reacted um, to the, the, you know, the tiger in the bush, right? We fled and that helped us survive as, as a species. You know, if you're in New York City and you step off the curb and the Crosstown bus is on the way, you jump back on the curb without even thinking about it. So in these kind of emotionally packed environments, the first thing you've got to do is recognize that you can't react emotionally. You've, you've got to react um, rationally. And everything Andy just said is spot on, in my view, is you've got to go back and slow down, take the, get the temperature down and say, okay, what really has happened and how does it affect your plan? Because studies have also shown that uh, our IQ goes down about 13% in stressful situations. So the plan is the safety net. The, the plan is the seatbelt. So goal-focused and planning-driven. So the rules-based approach and the financial plan is part of those rules is, you know, how do we, you know, are we on track, not on track? Because I believe there's only two reasons to change your strategy. One is if you're no longer funded to your goals. You could be overfunded. You could be underfunded. Those would be legitimate times to change your strategy. The second is if it's affecting your health. Clearly, if it's affecting your health, you can't sleep and, you know, there's a cost associated to, with ending that pain. Uh, but again, if it's affecting your health, you really don't you really don't have an option. So I believe that having a financial plan, um, having rules, a rules based approach that was thought out, evidence based, 
uh, because you really don't want to change strategy while the bullets are flying. The, the time to change strategy is we can just study the evidence and see, okay, what did we learn? But when bullets are flying, it's not the best environment to make dramatic changes if you set up your rules to begin with based on academic research and evidence that shows over time you've got a high probability of success. Isn't that going to be a problem, though? I mean, most people you know, tend to only want to talk about finances when, the, when something recent happened. I think it's called recency bias, where what you're seeing is happening. That's when they're worried and want to think about their finances. But when things are kind of bouncing along, they don't. So how do you kind of invert the curve? You said it goes down 13% when you're stressed. I'm kind of curious when it goes up 13%. I've never seen that. <laughs> so, so how do you avoid the fact that you tend to want to think, you are thinking about it when the bullets are flying. So Taylor, how do you get somebody to say, wait a second, this isn't a good time or what you're looking at this week isn't forever? Yeah, I mean, this is, it has been, uh, and um, exciting is probably not the right word, but it's been a great time to talk with clients. And we've had just great, real, honest conversations. And what's been great is that the people who have been listening and that have been seeking counsel and that have really wanted to implement a good rules-based long-term plan, yes, they want to talk and they, they like you're saying, they want to, they're thinking about it and they're asking questions. Do we make changes? What changes should we make? But if they've been implementing the plan for a long time, it's pretty easy to talk through that and go, you know, you're in a great spot because we've been working for years on this long-term plan. And it's just been such a great opportunity to see that long-term planning is a great way to weather these short-term storms like we're having now. And so, but the folks on the other side that have not been kind of, we've been meeting for years, but they haven't been uh, implementing kind of the, the plan that we've been talking about there. It's harder to talk them off the ledge because they're not in a great place to um, sit back and, and let things kind of work itself out. And, so those are the ones that I think are harder to have those conversations, talk them off the ledge. They're wanting to make changes faster, you know, more um, dramatic, drastic changes um, because they're not in the situation to take a deep breath and let the plan work itself out. So it's been a really, really neat opportunity to see that on both sides uh, with folks. Because it's, it's like you're saying, it's bringing up thoughts of what should we do for everybody, folks that have been implementing a good long-term plan, they're easy to talk, kind of talk, talk down. The folks that aren't as much in a good good position, it's it's a harder conversation. And we've we've glossed over a little bit. All of you have used the word plan, and and I think we've glossed over the the fact that one of the services uh, all of you and in, in your industry that does it right provides is when someone comes to you, you understand their needs, you understand their risk tolerance, you try and understand their, their you know, whether they can sleep at night, whether if the market goes down a little bit or a lot. And, and the plan you're talking about is developed uh, as objectively as possible, but based on that criteria. Uh, having done this work from the litigation side, what, what I often explain to folks is uh, not everybody is, a, a, you know, just like when you go to the store and buy a suit, not, not every suit is the same size as in the same color. And, and the same thing for a financial plan. It's got to be tailored to you. And, and every suit in my, in my closet is, in fact, the same size and the same color, according to my <laughs> wife. 
That, that's what we get issued when we when we graduate from law school, a, a dark suit and a red tie, and they send us on our way. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I, I don't want our listeners to, to uh, take away from this conversation that, that you're doing things on the fly, clearly not. You're doing things impulsively. Uh, what the, the benefit of the services uh, you provide is that you have set up a plan that is uh, to, to uh, weather that, uh, you know, both the ups and the downs. Yeah, You're you listening to Wealth Matters Radio, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Greg Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gas Lewis Frankel. We're talking with Jeff Bernier, President and Chief Investment Officer of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, Andy Avra, Avra Wealth Advisors, and Taylor Stanfill, Verisale Partners. And our topic today is behavioral finance tips for overcoming irrational financial decisions. Andy, I want to go back to something you said earlier on about bias. Give some examples of some bias that that you're seeing your clients have that may not automatically jump out at you or me. Well, I I, I think one of them is anchoring. Um, you, you know, I, I think you know when it comes to whether they want to invest or not, you know, they they tend to anchor towards something. Um, and so, you know, I bought this stock at $100 and therefore it's, it's worth more than $100. So it's the uh, Atlanta Coca-Cola syndrome. Um, you know, it goes into stuff. That, yes, yes. So, I mean, there's anchoring. There's, um, you know, there is that recency bias, you know, and, and basically, you know, the markets have gone down. I think they're going to continue to go down or, you know, the markets have been doing really well. And I think they'll continue to do really well. And so, you know, 2008 seems like, you know, it was just yesterday that it happened. But but I think the memory of 2008 has faded for a lot of people. Um, and so, you know, we've been in this long bull market, you know, excluding the last couple of months. But, but I think people just um, and realizing that there, there's a random element that's that's involved there. And I think I think the concept of anchoring, the way I often think about it, is um, people get fixated on on a number or something that is may or may not have any rash, rationality to current events. You know, for example, uh, Andy just mentioned, you know, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, real estate prices went went down a lot. People were still anchored to the price their neighbor got for their house in two thousand six and couldn't understand why their house uh, was now being appraised or if they tried to sell it was was maybe 30% less than that. Yeah, I see this all the time. Someone will, let's say someone paid 100 for a security and the security goes up to 200 and then the security falls back to 150. They'll say things like, well, I can't sell it because I've lost $50. And I said, well, if you sell it, I don't think the IRS is going to see it that way. You, you made a $50 gain. So you are correct. We tend to anchor on the highest price uh, in terms of securities that we, that we purchase. And, you know, the stock doesn't care what you paid for it. You know, it has a future earn income stream. You can discount those projected earnings and things like that to try to get a fair value for the stock or whatever method you use to evaluate companies. But the, the stock doesn't care. It, it, the, the company has no, uh, and the market doesn't care when you got in or when you got out. 
Um, so I think anchoring is a, is a big one. Taylor, what are some other examples of bias that you're seeing among your clients? Um, so I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, getting a little bit soft, like Jeff talked about a little earlier, is, you know, we all, we all have past experiences from childhood um, as we could become adults. And some of those life experiences, for example, my parents filed for bankruptcy when I was a kid. And that I have so many things that kind of influence my behavior and beliefs and um, that are biases for me because of some of those experiences. And so um, I see a lot of folks that are their worldview, their financial view, their biases are shaped by their experience as a child, adult, work, you know, from their career, from starting a business, from a business failing. There are so many things, and that, you know, kind of go back to our conversation of getting to know clients, asking questions. It's understanding, okay, what has influenced your biases? You know, what are those foundational elements that have built into those biases? Um, to me, are just as important as kind of defining or, or terming them or naming them um, based on my experience. One of the things that, that I've often thought about, and, and maybe this is uh, self-revealing, but um, folks don't understand probability and risk. Probably. <laughs> and and the example often given is that uh, you know sort of like a Las Vegas example. If you if you flip a coin five times and it comes up heads five times, the probability that it'll come up heads again on the sixth flip is still fifty fifty. Um, and I think a lot of folks, again, perhaps because because some of our biases, some of our evolutionary tendencies. Uh, don't realize that, um, you know, in my example, uh, maybe you don't have a hot coin, maybe you don't have a hot hand. Um, and any of you want to tackle how that, uh, those kind of issues uh, come into play in, in how you advise clients so they avoid irrational decision making? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think that uh, what I have, what I have learned is that we're just not very good with probabilities. I, I, I agree with you. It, um, and again, um, because what happens is we tend to place a high probability on really salient things that are in the news. Uh, and just because something's easy to remember doesn't mean it was highly probable. Um, uh, so I think all these kind of, all these kind of lead together. Um, you know, I, I saw a statistic once that um, a couple of years ago that, that more people died in one particular year uh, from taking selfies than, than, than for shark attacks. And of course, everybody's afraid of shark attacks, but nobody's afraid of taking selfies. And I guess they were backing into traffic or fell off a cliff or something <laughs> ridiculous. But the point is, um, you know, when you hear the statistics about plane crashes, uh, you know, air travel's really safe. Um, but when there is a plane crash, you know, we are afraid to fly. Uh, the same happens with investments. Um, so all these kind of lead together. And I think the storytelling the narratives that you talked about before have something to do with this too. Uh, because I think some of the behavioral biases I see lately is either fear of missing out. So, you know, you've got these unicorn stocks going public and everybody thinks they want to jump on the IPO. Well, statistically, um, most IPOs underperform the market by about 21% over the subsequent three years. So statistically, IPOs are really bad investments, but we're afraid of missing out. And so when markets are going down, we always care about uh, absolute returns. We don't want to lose money. When markets are going up, we care about relative returns. Did we beat the market? 
and both of them are, are irrational. So what really should matter is, you know, your benchmark should be your financial plan and your goals. So again, I, I think this, this probability and risk, I, I think we, we naturally have a hard time dealing with that because uh, it takes calories to think about probabilities. And so the stories are shortcuts. And so we just think shortcuts. And again, that served us well through evolution, but it's a bad way to make investment decisions. Right, sort of the visceral, immediate reaction. Um, what what I've learned from my advisor is that if if he has that reaction with respect to making a financial decision, he he has tried to teach himself to step back. Right, don't do anything. You know, just yeah. just be, because you have an immediate gut reaction to it, even though in many areas of life. Your, your gut reaction is often correct. This is one area where perhaps we ought to think about overruling that. Right. Robert, I think that's critically important just to, and I think that's, again, it's part of our role as an advisor is to help people take a step back, you know, and just think through, sleep on it, um, and just have that sound of objective sounding board. Because a lot of times, just like you're saying, yeah, that in, initial reaction or thought or decision may not be the wise one. And I, I will say, you know, this goes back to you talked about the plan. It's it's focusing on the long term because that whole probability, well, the market went up 5% today. Surely it's going to go down tomorrow or surely it's going to keep going up. And it, you know, the markets are irrational. I mean, it's, it's, it's random. Um, and, and no one really knows from day to day what's going to happen. And so you really have to focus on the long term. And, and a perfect example of that, again, I'm talking about, you know, this is something that happened recently. A week or two ago, employment numbers came out, X millions of people out of work. And my, my visceral reaction was, well, you know, when I see the business news tonight, the market will be down X. Market was actually up. Yeah. Uh, and I'm reminded of a quote, I don't know if it was Warren Buffett or something like that, who, who said that the, the markets can be uh, rational longer than you can remain solvent. And I think, uh, again, the, the, what, you, what each of you bring to this is, is a plan to try and, and uh, get beyond all that and, and, and follow a plan. Uh, much like you, you used uh, earlier, Jeff, the, the commentary about uh, you, you don't make a plan when the bullets are flying. You might have to. But, but a, good, a good general, a good uh, leader will, will have some plan in place and, and if necessary, be able to change it. So let, let, let's make some bullets fly. So explain to me maybe an example of, actually, let me start to do it differently. Is there a different bias that you're observing between couples, whether they be same sex or, 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 or more traditional? Where one couple has a person, one spouse has a, a certain view or bias, and the other spouse has a different one. How do you play that out when you're dealing, uh, talking to a client and trying to get them to to invest as rationally as they can? I'm I'm happy to dive in there. I, that's that's something I love. Um, I love kind of getting in the in a little bit of the messy in the weeds with with couples. Um, you know, and, and it it's usually that there's two different personalities. And they're coming at it from two different angles. And like you said, two different sets of biases. And it's, it can be a great experience when they can come together and use those different perspectives, the biases and, and 
make that work for them. You know, it can really bring them together. It can be a great experience. It can also be really tough if one or the other is not willing to lean in, give up some of their control or some of their you know, thinking and say, you know what? I see the world in red. You see the world in green. I'm okay giving up a little bit of my red view. Um, that's required in order for them to accomplish all they can accomplish. And so it's, it's really an incredible experience when they can do that lean in, come together. But it also can be a really challenging experience if they're not willing to give up some of that control, give up some of their viewpoint and say, you know what, you're right on this and I can get better by leaning into your perspective. Okay, Jeff, here's your big chance. We're getting towards the end of the show. <laughs> Tell me the best example that you can recall recently where you were able to help a client overcome what you consider to be a pretty obvious bias. Well, I mean, this is a, uh, this happens all the time. Uh, happened in 2008, 2009. It's happening today. And I'll just go back to Andy's recommendation about goal-focused planning driven. So, you know, you have clients that are approaching retirement. You get a bear market um, in the intervening years close to the retirement date. Uh, you have a well-constructed plan that planned for a bear market every five to seven years. I mean, we, we expect a bear market every five to seven years. So it's already been expected in the plan, but it happens. And it's a big one like 2008, 2009. And the client will come in and say, I, I can never retire now because, you know, I've, I've got a 30% downturn in my portfolio. And, and they look at the numbers. They don't look at the percentage. They always look at the wrong dollars because it's a lot scarier and it is. Um, and so you, they come in and we say, okay, you're correct. Your portfolio is down a significant amount because you participated in some portion of the downturn. What do we do now? And the plan will help them see, you know, you can retire, but you're going to spend 85% of the original goal, or you could work three years longer and retire at the same goal. Or you could save more money over the next three years and retire at the same time with the same goal. And so it's really about coaching them on choices and trade-offs. So it takes a huge, scary thing and converts it into a three-year problem or 85% of the original goal problem or how, what do we do now problem and it gives them some control over an action. And what normally happens is it, re it relieves the pressure because they said, look, I thought I was never going to retire. It means I can retire in three years. I can retire at the same time with 85% of the income. So what ends up happening, they end up not upsetting a long-term strategic financial plan. And then as markets do what they normally do, within a year or two or three later, they're right back to where they were and they could meet their original goal because they didn't exit the roller coaster at the worst time. So really, I just take it back to planning. And that's and that happens every day, it seems. So what I said before about you don't change the investment strategy when the bullets are flying, but you may change your plan when the bullets are flying because you have more control of your personal finances than you'll ever have on the capital markets. So let's deal with the things that we do have some control over. So anyway, that probably wasn't exactly the kind of thing you're looking for, but that's that happens every day, it seems to me, in in client consultation, especially today. Andy, do you have uh, a bias, a client that that's overcome a bias that you were able to help overcome a bias? Well, you know, I, I, I think the big one for me is that loss aversion. You know, I have a lot of clients who, you know, basically have a fear of running out of money. And it's, 
you know, they could be worth tens of millions of dollars and, and spend very little of it. Uh, um, and so helping them get clarity as to what their long-term picture really looks like so they can make better decisions. And really, like, I enjoy helping people around philanthropy and charitable giving and seeing someone who has a desire to give back begin to use some of their funds to, to give to charitable organizations has really been impactful for me. But take you to a place where they feel confident that they have enough and can give has been very rewarding for me. Taylor, how about you? A bias that you're, that you kind of feel good about that one of your clients was able to overcome because you intervened. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the biggest one that's coming to mind consistently is just, um, we're not going to be okay, uh, because of what's going on. I mean, in the midst of this pandemic, um, you know, people are panicked and they're worried that we're not going to be okay, whatever that looks like, whatever that means for their situation. And so helping them, you know, sitting, sitting down with them, you know, virtually, uh, looking at their plan, their cash flow, their net worth, and saying, you know what, we are going to be okay because of the work we've done over years. Um, you know, I think that's been the most clear example and rewarding, you know, over recent weeks. One, one of the things we hadn't mentioned, and it's perhaps too lengthy a discussion to get into here, is each of you have uh, the capacity to do uh, number crunching to, to demonstrate to your clients, at least we talked about probability, probability of, of where they may end up. I'm thinking of things like a Monte Carlo simulation. Uh, so you're, you're not just holding your finger up to the wind and saying, eh, I think everything will be okay. You can, again, there are no guarantees. No one knows what the future holds, but, but given the, the uh, software and computer programming we have now, uh, you do have the tools to, to give yourself and your clients comfort that, that the plan you have come up with um, has a probability of success, no, no guarantees. So as we're, as we're getting close to closing our show, let me ask each of you to give our, uh, our listeners your, your contact information, phone, website, email, whatever you prefer, uh, to anyone who may wanna contact you or, or learn more about your, your respective uh, advisory practices. Andy, let's start with you. Yeah, so you can, you can go Go to our website, it's uh, averowealthadvisors.com. Uh, it'll talk about our firm and who we are. Uh, you can also call me at 678-881-0813. Um, and, and yeah, we just enjoy helping people. So happy to help in whatever capacity uh, is beneficial. Taylor? Yeah, the best way to get a hold of us is verisale.com, uh, V-E-R-I-S-A-I-L.com, and you can get all the info there. Great. And Jeff? Yeah, likewise, uh, they can email me at jeff at tandemgrowth.com or on our website, www.tandemgrowth.com. And if you want to have a conversation, there's a little schedule a call and it'll go right to our schedule and we'll have an introductory chat over, over the phone. Thank you. I want to thank all of our listeners for actually listening to Wealth Matters. And I want to thank all of our listeners for being somewhat patient as we go through our virtual radio show, I, I could observe there was a kink or two. Uh, technically, I take all of the blame because we all know I'm in charge of it.
but please uh, accept our, our appreciation for your patience. And thank you for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at A State Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Today's guests were Jeff Bernier with Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, Andy Avera with Avera Wealth Advisors, and Taylor Stanfill with Verisale Partners. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.